My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Elves for Autism Foundation for autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. Although I've never hit a ball through a window or hit a ball to a passing car, so I have to say I'm terrible, but at least I'm not that terrible. But we and love- I've never hit anybody with a <laughs> golf club. <laughs> yeah, uh, but we love... But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not part of the podcast, I'm a member of our growing research team. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling the gaps of each department like glue. I am also autistic. This is our 32nd episode of the podcast. Kind of generous. I know that's an Ali Merchant song, but bear with me. With special guest <laughs> advisory board member, Sue Abramowski, and morning receptionist and fellow self-advocate Everett Burslow. Both individuals have important roles when we talk about people with disabilities reaching their potential, so make sure to stay tuned for their interviews on Part A of the podcast. Also on Part A is our foundation news and updates, where you will learn more about what we have been doing as a foundation, what we are doing, and what we will be doing. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, Interviews are featured stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, for Part B, listeners will get to hear our Day in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also, check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. Okay, and now today in the world of autism starting with Dr. Nate Shinnok and his fantastic research-oriented topics. Well, all right, we made it to our most popular segment here where we bring you the news, the juicy stories, the research findings, and so much more. And the yummy fish too, like in your first story. Yes, terrific segue. So first of all, the first story covers the zebrafish, which is much more than just a cute striped fish that you may or may not have heard of before. Exciting research from the University of California, Davis, specifically at the Mind Institute, has discovered a new gene implicated in autism spectrum disorder with the help of these incredible zebrafish. And what makes these zebrafish so special is that they share approximately 70% of the genetic variation with humans. So what that allows us to do is have a pretty good understanding of the etiology of a disease and also an understanding of how well a treatment approach will work for humans by studying the zebrafish. Okay, it's not perfect, of course, but it is a pretty close proxy that can be used. So, first of all, about 20% of autistic children have a disproportionately large brain, a condition that's known as megalencephaly, 
And this is associated with a reduced IQ and also language impairments. Children with this characteristic often represent some of the most profound cases of autism. In the initial phase of the study, the researchers analyzed the whole genome sequences of 88 people, 11 of whom had megalencephaly, or a disproportionately large brain. The researchers were looking for de novo, or mutations occurring in utero, that were associated with this complicated phenotype. They identified 10 compelling candidate genes, and they also studied the impact of knocking these genes out in a developing zebrafish. And when we say knocking the gene out, essentially this is splicing or cutting um, a, uh, a gene and studying the impact on development. When they knocked out one of these genes, it seemed to have a particularly profound effect on head size. And this gene was labeled as YTHDFT. Hopefully, they'll come up with uh, a, a new nickname that's a little bit easier to say. When they removed YTHDF2 from the zebrafish, their heads were smaller than usual and overexpressing of this gene. So they can also cause duplications or cause the gene to become more prominent. So when they did this, it led the fish to have very large heads, as is characteristic of megalencephaly. More recently, they've repeated the experiment in zebrafish that express a green fluorescent protein in their neurons, and they've confirmed that altering the gene affects not just the size of the head, but through the green fluorescent protein, they were able to see that brain volume was also dramatically pronounced um, when you had an overexpressing of this gene. So Merrick, I know you're a, you're a huge fan of animals. What do you think about the implications of this research? And you know, why is it important to try to identify new genes involved with autism or to try to just recognize genetic links in general? Well, I do find it interesting because reading ahead here, your second story also has to do with animals. But I'm not sure if, if a zebrafish can be considered a type of pet, but we will see. Um, my one, actually, speaking as a layperson here, I would think that someone with a disproportionately large brain would actually have increased IQ. So, what exactly makes up that part of the brain? that's, you know, increased in size. So what's interesting, Merrick, is when we look at overall brain volume, it's not a very good proxy for intelligence. And even if we look at across different species, the human brain is much more functioning than the brain of a whale or an elephant or these other very large species. When we talk about intelligence, what's more important in that regard would be the connections within the brain, okay? And specifically, if you look at an MRI scanner, you can see a lot of white matter in a brain that's, that's very healthy. And you'll, you'll see 
pretty much intact levels of white matter across various structures. So that's a huge factor. And when we look at some structures like the prefrontal cortex, which is involved with decision-making and focus and the ability to engage in complex problem solving, when this part of the brain is larger, that is a good thing for intelligence. That's usually um, a common finding. And that's also true across species. Humans, compared to other species, have the largest proportion of prefrontal cortex in relation to the rest of the brain. And so maybe if someone has a disproportionately large brain, that may make it harder for the neurons to connect because they have such a distance to go and such a space to travel, probably. Yes, that's very true. And with megalencephaly, we're also speaking about significantly enlarged structures. So this would be outside of, of typical ranges that we would see. And, and like you said, this could lead to some structures of the brain almost being large to the point of, of having inflammation or swelling. And certainly that's something that can disrupt the functioning in those areas and um, yeah, just lead to a lot of noise when it comes to different regions communicating. Yeah, I almost feel like I should probably say at this point, I'm not a scientist. And if this was actually visual, you would see me shrugging while I'm saying that. Almost like a, you, a, a sitcom punchline. I'm not a scientist. Ha ha ha. But uh, you were spot on. So, um, yeah, I think that it's, uh, it, it's definitely very, very interesting that a zebrafish out of all animals would have such a similar, I guess, composition that has to do with us as human beings. And I think that, um, you know, the more we learn about the brain, the more we learn about genetics, and the more we learn about, you know, how people function, how you know, any living organism thinks and functions and the like, I think that the better off we are because then we're able to understand more about, you know, what exactly is there that we can maybe seek to, uh, you know, see what, what we can do to help out and to improve people's lives and to, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I think... I I am definitely interested in when when you pick these types of stories like you pick that story about I believe you picked the story about the mice uh from the last episode and I'm interested in those kinds of stories because you always want to know more about what makes a living organism tick and I I think that things like this would be uh, are are just really really interesting to think about, and uh, I I just see this as another way to move forward 
in, you know, trying to break away the enig enigmatic, uh, you know, case of the fullness and totality of the living organism. Absolutely. So, uh, thank you for that story. Merrick, that's really well said. I have to say, I think you would make a pretty compelling scientist. You have a good mind for the for these sort of things. Well, but and if everything doesn't work out well, I could become mad. A mad <laughs> scientist. Believe me, I've been there and not just on Halloween. <laughs> so let's see. I also yeah, one more thing I want to quickly point out that's exciting with zebrafish is that when we talk, we talk a lot about mice models and there are actually some estimates that would show that zebrafish share more genetic variation with humans than mice do even. Um, some estimates put it close to 85 and 90% variation uh, or similarity. So the 70% that I mentioned was pretty conservative. And um, wow. Yeah, it, for mice, it's anywhere from 60 to 70%. So it's pretty amazing that we could share so much similarity with these, these fish. Yeah, um, but they're the also obscure fishes you can ever think of. All of a sudden, we're roommates. Yeah, exactly. We're relatives. I'm related to a zebrafish. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll invite some zebrafish to my Thanksgiving table. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully you won't serve zebrafish at that Thanksgiving table. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's borderline cannibalism. Yeah, it certainly is. All righty. So... My second story is also on animals. So Merrick, I'm glad that you picked up on my subtle theme here today. There's new research to suggest that pet ownership leads to better mental health outcomes in adults with autism. And there's also a lot of literature that supports this in neurotypical adults and also children as well. Even though dogs are my own personal favorite, I have a, a wonderful, 10-year-old dog at home named Cora. Um, so even though I love dogs, this association holds true regardless of the type of pet, at least according to a new research study that was published. And in this study that was done, uh, which focused on 735 adults, 326 of whom had autism, the researchers found that pets helped people with this developmental disorder to better manage their mood, and it also helped them to feel more comfortable in their socialization. Other improved outcomes included uh, feeling less lonely, reporting lower social isolation and social anxiety, and having better support, social support and overall satisfaction with life. Individuals with autism, notably, are significantly less likely to own a pet. But among those who do own pets, the researchers found that they were just 
as attached to these pets as typically developing adults. While those on the spectrum generally reported a lower quality of life than others, they were more satisfied with life if they had a pet. They found that this relationship held constant for all animals that were reported, whether it was dogs, cats, rats, and even fish. Even zebra fish. Yes, sir. And the study did note numerous barriers to pet ownership for adults with autism, including housing limitations, the cost, and the ability to care for an animal with other difficulties. However, the researchers said that the interviews showed that pet ownership could also help some people with autism to overcome their challenges. So this is a, this is a meaningful study. And Merrick, I'll turn it over to you and then I'll offer some of my thoughts and feelings. But what do you see as the key benefits of having a pet or what are some of the advantages to providing animal therapy? So the big thing, and uh, I'll have to disclose that the only pet I've ever had was a caterpillar that lasted for like a day or a few hours and then it died on me. So I've never really had a history that much with actually keeping a pet. But I think that what it is, is basically a pet doesn't, when, when you think about it, people with autism have a lot of difficulty with uh, human language, socialization, interaction, communication. But when it comes to an animal, you don't have a lot of those barriers. And so in a way, maybe the first uh, thing that a person with autism should have to interact with on a personal level is a pet, maybe a dog, maybe a cat, because then they would be able to uh, improve their skills in socialization, communication, interaction, uh, but not feel so challenged with having to deal with another human being. And I think that um, overall, if there's, if many individuals with autism feel much better with owning a pet, I think that it's really due to the fact that, you know, it's, it's all, it's, probably for many people, it's easier to relate to. And you don't have, it's, it's just, it's easier to relate to. And sometimes it, it feels much better to have to communicate to a companion like a pet than to have, you know, uh, another human being. So I, I think that that's, uh, that it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Merrick, I loved your point about using pets as a, a valuable tool for training, social interaction and communication. And it, it made me think of, about whether or not there have been any past studies looking at if pet ownership um, for, for very young individuals with autism, if, if that's something that could somehow lead to more desirable outcomes. Um, I imagine that there's something out there, but I'm not completely familiar with it. Uh, but it would be interesting to see how 
not just introducing this in adulthood, but actually introducing pets during the formative years of life um, can help train those skills. And especially if a child does not have siblings, you know, then maybe a pet becomes even more important in the process. Yeah, it's uh, definitely very, very important to consider um, the benefits of having a pet um, with someone as a, as a key or as a way to open up doors that you can't have with a reg with a human individual. Absolutely. Well, I'll close my comment on this story by saying that the research is clear. Dogs are the best. And I'll leave it at that. Well, considering that I have no loyalty towards any animal, but I will have to say that probably rattlesnakes are the best, but I have no experience with them. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm guessing it's time for my stories now. And I will tie, I, I had quite a time with this first one because. This is a very important story here, um, and I could go on and on and on and on, but I will try to make this as brief as possible. Um, I titled my story Jetting for Independence uh, because uh, most people will not know this, but while I love to travel and fulfill my goal this year of visiting all 50 states, I have rarely traveled alone. Usually I have this feeling of nervousness and anxiety on flying anywhere without someone with me. I don't think that I'm alone though. And while I did have a special trip, a birthright trip uh, in 2007 to learn about the history of Israel, um, it kind of felt gated and linear to a point in which it didn't feel as much like I was actually traveling somewhere alone and asserting my full independence. So what I ended up doing um, was uh, last month, I ended up uh, flying alone uh, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to Santa Fe, New Mexico to visit a few cousins and an aunt and uncle who live out there. And I've always loved New Mexico. I had never been there in the autumn and found that my calendar in October was vacant. And I've always had this plan to fly somewhere, not have to worry too much about expenses and the like, and just basically traveling alone. So I started working out a plan with one of my cousins to come over. It's also the birthday of another cousin who would be turning 24 years old on the 24th of October. Outside of transportation, I had no help in getting to Santa Fe and back to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. What surprised me was how seamless and effective everything else was because I had become so used to traveling via air for such a long time. Also, I found so much of my anxiety drifting away, it is pretty easy to create a routine and to adapt to it in an airport for me. When I was flying, I didn't ask for accommodations. I just picked the nearest window seat in an empty aisle and sat there. There's also not a holiday, so some of the flights were pretty empty. I think it was good that the time spent in the airport didn't choke me up too much, and it was easy finding places and times to relax. And when I was at Santa Fe, I decided that 
I don't drive. So I didn't want my cousins to think of me as a burden. I didn't want myself to be there just as an experiment, but as someone who could bring a little bit of light into, you know, these individuals' lives for at least a little bit of time to help them out, to bring a positive impact to them. And so basically, I ended up performing at this uh, uh, session that was overseen by the director of Twilight. I also um, took part in giving a sermon at the synagogue that my cousin uh, works at. I uh, did a lot of different things. Um, and I also helped out a little bit with my uh, cousin's bakery there, who was the one with the birthday. I sent him a playlist of songs that I made that were very, very important for him. Um, it was just such a welcoming moment and a welcoming experience. And it also, I, I kind of felt like I, I made a very positive impact just by being there to my cousins, my aunt, my uncle. Um, I would definitely like to do something like that again. But I'm just glad that what it revealed to me is that I have the power, the ability to do things on my own without having to, you know, be assisted and also to be able to uh, bring happiness to others and not just feel like I'm being a burden if I'm doing something as drastic as this. So my question to you, Nate, is what are your experiences like traveling by yourself? Have you ever flown alone before? Well, Merrick, I think it's incredible that you've done all this traveling and you accomplished your goal of seeing the the 50 states. I I really um, have a lot of respect for that. Uh, th I think it, you know, there's a lot of cool things about you, but I think it could be one of the coolest things. Um, so I, I've traveled myself on several occasions. Um, most of the time it was when I was transporting to and from Charlotte, North Carolina, when I was doing my undergrad studies there and I would come back to South Florida for the Christmas holiday and for the summer. And I, I got, I got very used to traveling alone. I prefer traveling with company, um, with family, uh, and definitely now my wife, I think it's, I, I think it's, it's fun to share experiences with people and, um, I don't love flying. I never have. Um, I'm more of a more comfortable on the ground. I'm a, a tourist. So I so guess I'm a road prefer, trip person. I'm more of a road trip person. Exactly. I, I think road trips are very, very fun and a great opportunity to self reflect and engage in some deep thinking. But on planes, I am a little bit nervous and, um, I usually have uh, a good podcast loaded, like the Four Autism podcast, or otherwise a good playlist. But um, yeah, I I want to just say that I think 
one thing that I had, I wish I had done in my 20s is travel more, uh, definitely across the country and also internationally. So I, I just want to point that out to anyone who's listening to this and you're maybe in your late teens or early 20s, you know, um, it's not all about work. Uh, there has to be time to experience the world and uh, make some of those memories like Merrick is saying. Yeah, and it allows you to discover yourself more. Um, but yeah, for me, it was an experience I had talked about for like six, seven, eight years. And the fact that I was finally able to do it and I was able to have a positive impact was all very, very important for me. Well, I think that's the case uh, for most places you go to. I'm not surprised that you're getting recruited to move to New Mexico. Well, actually, uh, I'm not really, I, I, I don't want to uh, expose myself too much, but when I left, they were all like wanting for me to move and wanting for me to have a spot over there. And you know, I can't really do that. But um, I was extremely appreciative of how much they valued me being there for them. And, you know, I just, I, I think what it basically is, is that, you know, if I have like some time uh, that I can spend or whatever, you know, it's, it's an invitation to come back to New Mexico and to sort of repeat the process again uh, sometime next year probably. Very good. But uh, our second story here from me is about the second Sea Lord Vice Admiral, Admiral uh, Nick Hines, uh, who is uh, autistic. So November 11th was Veterans Day. On a day like Veterans Day, we celebrate and support our veterans from a number of different wars and conflicts fought all over the globe. Generally what can help veterans are visiting their hospitals, listening to their stories, or perhaps also listening to stories that are uncommon from the perspective of people who are not generally encouraged to serve. Our military generally isn't too fond of having people serve with disabilities, and that would also include autism. While the interest in order and routine may make many individuals with autism great candidates to serve, the idea that our differences may disrupt the cohesion of the military are not uncommon. Yet it has been said that there are many members of our military that may have undiagnosed autism and yet serve with flying colors. Vice Admiral, Vice Admiral and Second Sea Lord Nick Kine of the British military is one of those who has served with distinction for years and encourages for a greater climate that allows knowledge of how distinctive but yet how great autism can be to members of a military force. In an article from the National Autistic Society for Stories on the Spectrum in April 2022 to mark World Autism Awareness Week, well, World Autism Awareness Month, a representative of the society interviewed Mr. Hine, whose desire it is to increase the number of individuals with autism in the Royal Navy. He also discusses that his announcement of having autism is something recent and something that he is proud of. Nick Hine joined the Royal Navy instead of enrolling in college due to the stress of social situations. 
He learned about his condition after returning from Baghdad, Iraq in 2009 when he thought he had PTSD. His autism manifests itself as direct communication and persistence, yet it also creates challenges that social activities are seen as extremely exhausting to him. What I find interesting in reading about him is that he is the Royal Navy's Chief Personnel Officer, which means the HR Director for the whole of the Royal Navy. Because of his position of authority, he has decided to adapt the culture of recruitment and retention to fit a greater neurodiverse structure and believes that we are underutilizing a population that needs more utilization. He also hopes that what he does will spread to other parts of the British Armed Forces. Nate, I remember you talking about your mil family's military background. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. First of all, I commend the the message from from Nick Hine, which um, just further normalizes autism spectrum disorder, and even in uh, a, a club or a, an organization like the military, not a club, <laughs> but that um, typically has been a little bit exclusive uh, for people with disabilities. So. I, I will say, I think there's probably been a lot of cases in the military of people that are undiagnosed with autism or people that at least have some of the phenotypes that correspond with autism. Um, so maybe people that are very routine oriented, uh, people that are not all that skilled socially or expressive in their communication um, and maybe even people that have some stereotyped or repetitive behaviors. So I think although there's not um, a long list of people that have been open about having a diagnosis, you know, chances are there's still, there's still a lot of diversity in the traits that you see in the military. Um, and getting, getting to my family's military history. So first of all, my, all of my great, uh, grandfathers served in the, uh, served in World War II. And, uh, since then, you know, my, my grandfather on my mother's side served in the Vietnam war and he was a recipient of the purple heart. Um, which is an honor that you get for essentially saving the life of another soldier in combat and going through great lengths and risking your own life to help save that person. So I'm very proud of my my grandfather for, for that. And um, this is kind of a fun side note, but also on my mother's side, my it's either four or five greats, but um, I have an uncle, great, great, great uncle on my mom's side that is Davy Crockett, the, the very famous, uh, folk hero of the Alamo war. And he was also a, a Senator of Tennessee and is, is just basically a, a legend of American history. So there's a lot of military roots in my family and, um, as a, a young child, I also had a goal of eventually serving in the military in some capacity. 
And I haven't achieved that yet. Um, I've been been close at times, but maybe uh, that's something that's still in store for me. Well, uh, I salute you, um, uh, Dr. Nate Shinnok, uh, for your uh, service in other areas. And if you do go into, you know, into a little bit of commission too, I salute you in that area too. But whatever you do, whatever you do with your life, I think that I would take this time to salute how thankful I am and how grateful I am for you being a co-host. It has been well, very, very, it's been, it, you can say that it can be very, very difficult to find someone to team up with for any occasion. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be podcast. It could be work project. It could be anything like that. And you could be partnered up with someone who you really can't get along with, who you really don't like, who you really don't have any kind of uh, uh, feeling with. But for some reason, this partnership between the two of us, and I'm very, very thankful for this, but it works out extremely well. Even if you're the one giving out, you know, the more cerebral stories and I'm more about emotions and that kind of thing. I think that what is really, really important though is the fact that that you are a great match for the whole thing that I'm doing with this podcasting, uh, whatever you want to call it. And I'm just really, <laughs> really thankful that that you're that you've been my co-host since for the last two years and it has only gone up from there. It has never gone down. It has only gone up. And I thank you for being a part of it. Well, thank you so much, Merrick. I mean, you're, you're really the, the driving force behind the podcast. You, um, you, you engage in most of the planning and, and finding our wonderful guests. And, uh, you know, it, it's so much fun to do this with you. And, um, before I forget, I also really want to, because we had Veterans Day on Friday, I really want to thank uh, the brave men and women that that have served or are currently serving our country. Um, they, they're very courageous people and they continue to help us um, to live in freedom and to enjoy uh, a great quality of life. But uh, yeah, Merrick, um, going back to you absolute pleasure it is a, a great partnership we have going and i can't believe that it's episode 32 i i kind of uh jumped in my chair when i saw that in your intro and uh we've had a great ride here and uh you know thanks for for all that you're doing for the podcast and for the autism community in general you know i can't can't think of anyone I know that's more respected in that community and just universally well-liked. I think that in order to close this episode, I'll have to see if the song Davy Crockett is in the public domain enough that I can actually use it. If not, <laughs> you will hear the familiar uh, 
harmonies and melodies of just like a butterfly but I, I i did think to myself okay well wouldn't that be a great salute but uh my uh one of my uh grand uncles actually participated in the d-day of invasion and he was one of the first people who i sort of knew uh before i moved down to here to florida because he was down here along with a few cousins of mine. And unfortunately, the same year that I moved down to Florida is the same year he passed, 2004. But uh, it was just, yeah. it was near the end of his life when my father told me about his experiences serving in the D-Day invasion. And I just never knew. But here's wow. to... Uh, Martin Sonny Feingold, who served this country in uh, the D-Day invasion of World War II. What a hero. Thank you for your service. Yep. So, okay. So uh, I would like to thank the foundation for being kind enough to uh, allow us this uh, podcast. And we will see everyone again in December with great special guests and just a great time to be alive. So, um, Nate, do you want to join me in doing the familiar four? Wouldn't have it any other way. Okay. One, two, three. <laughs> I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. A moth is a butterfly without any colors, but what's beautiful is what's inside. Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide. Well, I'm just a caterpillar crawling around. Knowledge in my head, but my feet on the ground. Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky, like a butterfly. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours You can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor caterpillar Will grow up and take to the sky Like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Oh, like a butterfly I'll fly into the air
a higher point of view We'll fly together, me and you well, Now I can fly so high Cause I'm a butterfly I'm flying through the air so high I'm a butterfly